And now if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 14. If you would please give attention to the reading of the Holy Word of God. The Word of the Lord is completely without error. It is completely authoritative. And it is completely sufficient. Revelation, chapter 14. Then I looked... And behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him a hundred and forty-four thousand who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth, 
and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle, or 1,600 stadia. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's ask for his blessing upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would teach us this evening, that you would teach us from your word, that you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might worship him alone, and that we might be equipped to face all of the challenges that are before us, that we might know your grace. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. In the midst of hard times, it can be difficult to go on, can't it? Perhaps many of you were caught unawares or concerned about the great difficulties and even something as day-to-day -day as the stock market this past two weeks. As we saw the market go radically down and radically up, like some kind of roller coaster. Something out of control, out of our control. Perhaps some of you that realized that that radical up and down was intimately linked to your retirement accounts were even more concerned about what would happen and what would be brought. And when these sorts of things happen, we long to hear that everything is going to be all right. We long to hear our politicians come up or economists and say, you know what, it's going to be all right. Or maybe you've had a different experience. Maybe your experience has been when you've gone to the hospital or to the doctor for tests. You don't feel well. You're pretty sure that something is wrong. And you're hoping against hope that it's not really anything significant. The doctor comes into the room in his long flowing white coat. What you long to hear is an assurance that everything's going to be all right. We know what's wrong. We've got some medicine for that. There's a treatment for that. Perhaps it was a time in which you were embarking upon your family, about to have your first child, or maybe even scarier, your second child or your third child. And you don't know how this is going to work. How will you parent? How will the new kids, brother and sister, get along? What will you do? And you long to hear from others who are more experienced, don't worry. It's going to be all right. This is what will happen. Well, if we are honest with ourselves, we can feel that way about the entirety of our life because life comes at us fast and furious, doesn't it? There are so many things that can test our faith, so many areas in which we're not certain, so many things that cause us doubt. And a text like today's text, Revelation 14, is God's way of saying to his people, don't worry. Everything's going to be all right. I'm in control. I know what's coming. It's this kind of a text that gives us comfort through all of the midst of our difficulties. You see, a text like this, Revelation 14, is not primarily written, as we have said over and over again, as some kind of predictive uh, statement 
that we can then say that we know more about the future than others. No, this is a statement about the future to help us now to know that everything will be all right. And so what we are going to look at then this evening are three things. First thing we're going to look at is the new song that is sung by the redeemed. And then secondly, we will look at the proclamation that comes from heaven. And then finally, we will see the harvest that is made by the Lamb. The new song, a proclamation, and the harvest. Well, let's begin then by looking at this new song. This is uh, a place that we are familiar with. There is now a vision of heaven. We see it here as, as we look with John and see on Mount Zion, that is not the physical mountain, <coughs> but the mountain that signifies the city of God. We see this as we hear the voice from heaven in verse 2. And as we see this group that is seated around the throne, they are in heaven. And they are in need of bringing assurance to us of hard times about a victory that is decisive and has already been won. And we will see here the first of the sections of this chapter. Each section is begun with John saying, Then I saw, or then I looked. If you see here at verse 1, at verse 6, and then at verse 14. The ESV is not exactly helpful to us here because it decides to translate the same word two different ways. But the I looked and I saw are all identical. It's John's way of breaking this up for us into segments. And the first segment is a vision of heaven. Now we have just seen, have we not, the beast rise up from the sea and his partner in villainy, the beast rise up on earth and we've heard about persecution and we've heard about death and we've heard about martyrdom. And now we're in need of some comfort, aren't we? This is, this is kind of like when perhaps you were younger and you watched a movie that you really shouldn't have and it's scared you. And you're about to go to sleep and, and you just, you can't close your eyes because these images of fear keep rolling through your head. We've just seen the beast and we're tempted to focus upon him. And so what does John do for us? What does the Lord do for us? What he does is he brings front and center the Lamb of God. It's a great contrast to bring us assurance. What better way to dispel whatever fears we would have of our persecution, of the failure of the church, of Satan and the beast, than to put right in front of us Jesus Christ? Isn't that what we do after a fashion with our children? If they are frightened and don't want to go to sleep, and the darkness is thick, and they're sure that there are monsters, what do we do? We come in and we comfort them. We turn on the light. And we say, look, there's nothing to be afraid of. And we begin to remind them of everything in their life that is good. To focus them upon this. That's what the Lord is doing for us here. From Mount Zion in heaven, we begin to see the great song of the redeemed. This is this 144,000 who had the name of Jesus Christ 
and the name of the Father written on their foreheads. So who are they? Well, there are all sorts of speculations about who this 144,000 are. And again here, there is a way in which we could be tempted to take this too literally. We can look and we can say, well, the only ones who are surrounding the Lamb are exactly 144,000. And of course, they must all be men because of the description later. And they must all be virgin men. But that's not really what the text is getting at. It's not a description of exactly who people are. It is a description of the company of the redeemed. If you have your Bibles with you, flip back with me just a few chapters, and I'll remind you of something that we looked at before in Revelation chapter 7. Do you remember we saw there another 144,000 who were sealed from the tribe of Israel, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes? And you'll recall that we said that this was also not intended to be specific. It is not that this 144,000 are just Jews. Because you'll recall we looked and, and the tribes don't even match up. There's a tribe of Joseph, but yet there's also a tribe of Manasseh. And so we wondered what this was and we looked at it and we thought and described that what John is doing here is describing the whole of the company of the redeemed. He's describing all of the church. For those of you that enjoy math much better than I do, 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 1,000. It is a way of speaking in the ancient world of completeness, of the entirety of a vast number. And that's what is being described here by John. You see, he is contrasting those who follow the Lord with those who we saw earlier follow the beast. That's why we see here again that they have the name of the Lamb and the Father written on their foreheads. That's in direct contrast to the mark of the beast upon those who followed him. But you see, there's a very big difference between getting a mark of the beast and being sealed with the Lamb's mark on your forehead. You see, because the idea of sealing takes the concept of protection and security along with it. It is not just that these 144,000 are marked out as Jesus is, but they are protected by Jesus. They are secure in Jesus. You see, the beast provides no security. The beast provides no protection for those who follow him. We know this because John describes what their end is. But you see, if we are marked with the mark of Jesus, then nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not the beast. Not a false prophet. Not trial or tribulation. Not Satan himself. Jesus knows those who are his. It's as if, well, we're back to school now, right? And one of the things that goes along with back to school is new school clothes. And it's not just now, it was true in my day that when you went back to school, it's important what kind of clothes you wear. You know, it seems like parents are always up against the resistance of their children to not only find clothes that fit, but the clothes that have certain labels certain amount of coolness to them. Well, if you'll see by way of analogy, that's what's going on here. 
You see, every believer, everyone who is in the people of God has a label on them, have a stamp on them, and that stamp says, Made in Heaven. They are part of the people of God. God has created them. God has redeemed them. God has changed them. And if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then that is true of you as well. Through all the trials and tribulations that you are in now, you are protected by the seal of Jesus. These 144,000 are not only sealed by Jesus, they are like Jesus and becoming more and more like Him. If we look here at verse 4, they have not defiled themselves. They have been redeemed from mankind as the first fruits for God. And in their mouths no lie has been found, for they are blameless. Now, what is going on here with the description of these 144,000 as virgins? I think this is again metaphorical and symbolic. It harkens back to the days of the Old Testament when the warriors of Israel were to go out and to fight the pagan nations at the command of the Lord. They were required to keep ceremonial purity. They were to be committed to the cause. But that's also true of you and me, isn't it? We are to be committed to Jesus Christ. We are not to be betrothed to anyone else. We are not to be beholden to anyone else. We are to be faithful only to the bridegroom. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. See, all of us are called to that. To be pure to Jesus Christ until that great wedding feast happens. We are to be committed to the Lord Jesus. And as we are committed to Him, we become like Him. You see, this group of the redeemed is not like the followers of the beast. The beast who lies as a part of his being. In their mouths, no lie is found. They are not just committed to Christ, but they are being fashioned into the image of Christ. It's as if Peter writes, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. We are to be blameless as Jesus is blameless. Do you think about that as you go through your everyday life? As you think to yourself, well, you know, it would just be a little easier to tell a little white lie here. Well, I could cut this corner and, it, yeah, it's not exactly proper, but it'll make my life easier. Right? When mom asks you a question, kids, and you know the answer that you give will get you in a little bit of trouble. It's not major trouble. It's not something that's so important. You can, you can kind of push it off to the side. It's not something that's so serious that she needs to know about. And you're tempted instead to just simply give her the answer that you think she wants to hear rather than the truth. In that moment, you need to be thinking of Jesus and the fact that he never lies. He never lied to you once. All his promises are true all the time. It's the way in which we as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ must follow after him in honor and in integrity. 
And when we do, this text shows us that it is a beautiful thing because this great throng comes together and they sing a new song. And in the Bible, a new song is always an indication of a song of great joy and redemption. We'll see next week the song of Moses that was sung originally as the Israelites were out into the Exodus. We see David as he is redeemed from difficulty singing a new song. And this song is a marvelous song. It has overpowering strength. Do you see that? It has a roar like water. It has the sound of thunder. But it's something else too. It not only has overpowering strength, it has a heartbreaking sweetness to it as well. Because it sounds like what? Not just the roar of the ocean, but like harps. Now, we are blessed to be able to understand this text because we're blessed to hear harps nearly every week. And we hear how beautiful it is. Isn't that true? When especially during the offertory or during an interlude, we hear just that harp playing. And we're able to sit and close our eyes and be carried away by the sweetness of the music. That's this song. It is a song of power, but it is a song also of beauty and sweetness. Well, this song comes forward, but there is also then a proclamation. John sees yet another section here in verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead. And he then begins to proclaim an eternal gospel. Now, what is this eternal gospel? It is something proclaimed to everyone throughout all the earth, every nation, every tribe, language, and people. And as we look at this, we're, we're set aback, I think, a little bit. Because when we hear gospel, we expect to hear certain things. We expect the angel to say, there's forgiveness in Christ. Jesus died for your sins. I half think that Many of us in our modern day and age expect the angel to recite the Romans' road. Because, of course, that's the gospel. But he does something very different. He says, fear God and give Him glory. Because the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And we may look at this and say, this doesn't seem like gospel to us. It doesn't seem like good news. It seems like judgment. The hour of judgment coming. But you see, this is also part and parcel of the gospel. Because the gospel has twin roles. It describes for us how we find forgiveness and grace only in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the flip side of that is, if we reject that gospel of grace, that all we find is judgment. For there is no other sacrifice, there is no other source of grace, there is no other hope than Christ. We cannot look anywhere else. All we will find is judgment. We either trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and follow Him and worship the Lord as He deserves, or we can expect judgment. That's what the angel says. Do you think about this when you think about the gospel? 
And I think this is important because if we have that kind of mentality, if we think about it, it will give us a passion for our neighbors. It will give us a passion for our family members. It will give us a passion for our friends because it's not just a good thing that we can tell them about. It is the only way of life. All else is judgment and condemnation. It is an impetus to the gospel because you see even now even here after we have seen the beast the angel comes and it is not too late the Lord still calls but notice where the focus is the focus is upon the Lord not upon us it is him we must fear it is him we must give glory it is him we must worship that's also part and parcel of this proclamation. The gospel is God-centered, not man-centered. The gospel does not begin and end with me and my sins. It begins and ends with the glory of the living God, who is redeeming for himself a people so that they might gather together a new song of honor and worship and praise to him. Is that how you think about your salvation? I dare say that too often today the great salvation of our God is viewed as glorified fire insurance. When in reality, it is a call to worship the king of the universe. There is then a proclamation that comes about the judgment to come. For a second angel comes out and says, <clears throat> excuse me, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And so we now here see the outworkings of the great sovereign God because he is judging Babylon, that great false system. Now, this is also a bit out of, uh, out of left field because we haven't even been introduced to Babylon yet. We will be, but Babylon is that great world system that is opposed to God. It is a system, it is a way of living that is marked by self-indulgence, by violence, by passion, by immorality. Well, what does that look like? What does that mean? In God's providence, we've seen what it means. The way we've seen this is this describes the Israel that Amos is decrying against. People who crush the poor and the needy. It's people who cry out, bring me a drink. It's people who say, oh, it doesn't matter. I'll worship how I want to worship. It's a people who have no thought for God, but only for themselves and their own passions. Judgment is coming upon that way of thinking. And that judgment is eternal. You see, there are many false beliefs about judgment and hell. Some of you have seen them or heard people express them. There's, of course, that great false judgment that says, oh, well, you know, I'm going to go to hell and I'm going to party. All my friends, we're going to do all whatever we want to do. It's going to be a big party. Not according to the Word of God. According to the Word of God, it's wrath, and anger, and torment, and smoke, forever and ever. 
There are others, even those who are Christians, that say, well, God can't possibly be that mean. What hell must mean is that he wipes people out. He annihilates them. Again, that's not what the Scripture says. What the Scripture says is that they will be tormented with fire in the presence of the Lamb forever and ever, and they will have no rest. And forever and ever here means forever and ever. It's the exact same word that is used in Revelation 4, verse 9, to describe Jesus Christ. He is the one who lives forever and ever. It's the same phrase. This is serious judgment. It's a judgment and a punishment that is eternal, that involves physical pain, because they have rejected God. Look at verse 10. They will drink the wine of God's wrath that is poured full strength into the cup of His anger because they have rejected the Lamb. There is a judgment to come. Knowing that there is a judgment of com to come shows us then as the people of God, if we claim Jesus Christ, that we are called to perseverance. Because you'll see here what happens in verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Hearing about this judgment calls us to perseverance. Now, this word here for endurance has two aspects to it. The first is an aspect of patience. Now, I don't know about you, but patience is something I struggle with. I don't like to wait for things. When I was in school, I didn't want to wait for my grades. I wanted them right away. I was the child, this is pre-lawyer, who would try as hard as he could to convince his parents that 1201 was actually Christmas. It was Christmas Day, and so we should be able to open our presents. Because technically, it's Christmas Day. And I don't want to wait to see what I got. Perhaps you struggle with patience too, especially as things are difficult in front of us. You see, there is a call here for us as Christians to endure and to be patient with what we see in front of us. Immorality, rebellion against God, sickness, death, all of the horrors of a sin-cursed world because we know and can be patient because Jesus is redeeming the world. In the same way, the second aspect of this word is a call to endurance, to push on, to persevere, because we know that God is sovereign and in control, and because we know that rest is coming. Look at verse 13. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. You see, God has not promised to rapture us out of trouble. He has promised to deliver us through trouble. And there's an important difference. Because if we think the first, we're constantly trying to avoid problems and wondering why God isn't doing what He promised. But if we realize that what He has actually promised is to deliver us through trouble, then we trust Him in the midst of all of our circumstances. That's what this call is. The third and final thing that we see here this evening is found in verse 14 and following. 
John looks again. Then I saw. And behold, a white cloud. And seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man. He has a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And this is indeed the Lord of the harvest. It is Jesus Christ himself. He is like the Son of Man, how he is described in the book of Daniel, how he is described earlier in Revelation. He has a golden crown on his head, showing us that he is the King of kings. And he has an instrument of reaping the harvest. Now, we must get out of our minds something that probably popped into our heads as soon as I said the word reaping. We usually associate that with a grim reaper. You know what I'm talking about. Big black cloak, bony hands, big sickle, right? The reaper of this harvest is not a grim reaper. He is a patient planter. He is the one that planted the seeds and said, let the wheat and the tares grow till the time of harvest, and then I will gather my people to myself. Jesus Christ has had patience. But now, to borrow a term from the great old hymn, he is bringing in the sheaves. He is gathering up the wheat to go into his storehouse. He is separating out the good, dry grain from the tares. That's what's happening here as the sickle comes in and reaps the earth. For the earth is, look in verse 15, fully ripe. Now is the time of harvest, and Jesus will reap. But the harvest has two aspects to it, doesn't it? It's not only that the wheat is gathered in and stored, but the tares are taken and what? Burned. Here John uses a different image. It's an image of grapes. This is the imagery, if you didn't know where the book title and other things come from of the grapes of wrath. That's where this comes from, the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the angel goes through and he reaps together all those who are the enemies of God. And they are brought into the great winepress of his wrath. The imagery here is found in Joel chapter 3. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for the evil is great. God is putting judgment upon wickedness. You see, this is the great separation. In humanity, there is no Switzerland. There are either those who have the mark of the Lamb and serve Him and are like Him, or those who rebel and have the mark of the beast. There is no in-between. And the harvest makes that clear. So as we think about this and think about our lives and the world, we must understand that this harvest is inevitable. This is something that is coming. It is sure. We must also remind ourselves that the harvest is a transition to the fulfillment of the promise of God. It is the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. It is being gathered together forever to be with Jesus. 
So this week, ask yourself this question. Am I being patient? Am I enduring? Am I longing for the harvest? Do I trust the Lord Jesus that He will take care of all? That I have assurance in the midst of all that's swirling around me? You see, this is why we are pointed to the end. So that we might know that God is in control, protecting and securing us to the very end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You that You have shown us the end of all things. That we might have assurance that You, O Lord, are at work. That You, O Lord, are in control. And we ask this evening that You would remind us of that as we go through all of the challenges of a coming week. That we would look to You and Your sovereignty. That we would look to the Lamb whose blood was shed. We ask all of this in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.